Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with journalist Jerry Roberts, who runs Newsmakers with JR, which is a very popular local political blog. And I'm going to talk to him today about what's going on with the Santa Barbara Unified School District race. We're going to talk a little bit about what's on the ballot locally in the state, as well as uh, talk a little about Donald Trump and COVID-19 and uh, whatever else comes up. Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Josh. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. You're my first uh, duplicate guest, so I'm super excited. You're in an elite league right now. I'm honored. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we do uh, your show quite a bit, and uh, you ask me a lot of questions, so I think it's going to be kind of fun to turn the tables a little bit and ask you some questions here about uh, what's going on locally. Let's talk about Santa Barbara Unified School District. That is a really exciting election. It's really interesting. It's kind of compelling. And, you know, we've got these conservatives who are trying to oust the incumbents. And then we've got a fourth sort of uh, Democrat who's uh, trying to get a seat among, um, you know, at the table, and that would mean one of the incumbents would be ousted. So there's a lot of sort of dynamics going on, and we got, you know, a couple other candidates there. But what's your, what, what are you thinking of when you're thinking about this campaign? Are we going to see uh, anything new on the school board, or do you think these incumbents are poised to be reelected? And we're talking about Laura Capps, Wendy Sims Moten, and Jackie Reed. Are they going to get reelected? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, if you were handicapping it with <clears throat> my Las Vegas bureau chief today, yeah, you'd probably have to um, say they're the front runners. But, you know, if you look at the political landscape of the race, you do have to go back to 2016. And remember, the school board had just hired a new superintendent the summer before, Kerry Matsuoko. Uh, three members were going off, and only three people signed up to, uh, to run. And they are, as you said, uh, Laura Capps, Jackie Reed, and Wendy Sims Moten, all uh, progressive Democrats, uh, you know, visible and, and active in that, in that world locally. So they went on the board and with um, uh, Matsuoko over the last four years have put in place a lot of programs with uh, the priority being on equity, that is giving everyone uh, the support they need uh, in a very diverse school district uh, with a lot of programs that, as you know, have turned out to be controversial. Uh, and whether it's been the Just Communities Implicit Bias Training uh, or um, the Ethnic Studies Program, uh, Dual Language Immersion Programs, even the Teen Talk Sex Education. So as they've implemented that agenda, uh, there has arisen uh, some uh, resistance to that among more conservative parents uh, who don't like that direction. And uh, out of that has bubbled up a couple of uh, conservative challengers, Elrod McLern, who's a young guy, uh, a black guy who works for the county, uh, but uh, has uh, conservative stances on these issues, and Brian Campbell, uh, a prominent uh, real estate uh, uh, executive in town who also ran for the city council. So they're kind of on the other side of the, you know, the Caps-Reed-Sims-Moten axis. And then right in the middle of that uh, is uh, Virginia Alvarez, who is uh, an administrator at the Montecito Union District, I think shares a lot of the 
stances of the three incumbents, but also I think brings uh, a very kind of more practical knowledge and experience about school finance, which is enormously complicated. And then uh, Moni DeWitt, who you and I have seen many times testify um, at the at the school board, and is uh, you know kind of the very very focused on uh, changing the approach of the district toward literacy. So uh, you know you have an array across the um, uh, uh, across the spectrum. I think if you look at you know who's going to turn who's going to vote in 2020. I mean Santa Barbara always has a high uh, voter percentage of people voting, but you know, it's going to be more democratic because of the presidential election. So, you know, you kind of have to look at the three incumbents as the front runners. I think Virginia Alvarez is, is right there. And then the question is, you know, how big is that conservative block going to turn out to be? Is it going to be enough uh, to put uh, Elrod and, and Campbell on the board? Yeah, it's interesting because you've got various scenarios. You know, if one conservative ran, I think they would have a better chance of getting one conservative on the board. But you've got two conservatives running, and so you get three votes, but people are going to have all kinds of combinations of votes. And it is technically nonpartisan. So when people are going to vote, unless they're super insiders, there's going to be all kinds of competition between who they're going to pick and who they're going to choose and all sorts of reasons. And I just feel like conservatives don't play the political game as well as they, they should in Santa Barbara, which means start early, find your best conservative who's viable, just run one, you know, and then build over time. So in this election, let's try to get one. And then when the next election in two years, let's try to get another one. And starting early in the process, and I think that's one of the things that the Dems do a lot better, is that they groom, and of course they get criticized for it, of course, that because they try to clear the field and they shut people out, and you know we're sort of seeing that with Virginia Alvarez. But what is your take on sort of the that Republican Party dynamic conservatism that we have in this race and beyond in local politics? What do they do right? What do they do wrong? Well. I, you know, I think uh, <clears throat> demographics uh, are somewhat against them, and, and, and Santa Barbara, South Coast, and the county as well is becoming more and more democratic, as is the state of California. Part of that has to do with the increasing um, uh, portion of the electorate that's uh, Latino, um, which has been heavily democratic in California ever since Proposition 187. Uh, no, way back in 1994. Um, so, you know, they got an uphill fight. Um, I don't think that the Republican Party per se is particularly uh, well organized. There's been a lot of infighting over the last few years. And as you say, you know, the Democrats have been very disciplined. And uh, Doraka, you know, Larimore Hall is a, a key figure who a lot of people may or may not know behind the scenes. But when he took over the party back in, I don't know, 2010, 2011, you know, he was pretty uh, out front about the fact that what we're going to do is we're going to put Democrats 
endorse Democrats in all of these nonpartisan seats, whether it's the Board of Supervisors, the City Council, the school district, and they've done a very good job of doing that. And as a result, whoever gets the Democratic endorsement, you know, in a, in a, in a race like this one, where there's not a lot of, you know, information, you and I and Delaney do the best we can, but, you know, it's, it's basically a low information race. So people look for signifiers about, you know, who should I be for? Well, I'm a Democrat. Here's a Democratic endorsed candidate. That's what I'm going to do. It also happens that they have volunteers, which, you know, in the COVID era is less important, but going door to door. And they also provide access to uh, money, you know, via unions, other politicians, uh, and so on. So then, you know, if you look at the spending reports, well, who are the top three? You know, Laura Capps has, I think, 34,000. Jackie Reed has, you know, 20, 22. Um, uh, Wendy Sims Moten has 18. Virginia's done pretty well hanging in there. She, Alvarez, she's got 13. And why does that matter? Because this is an election, I think, that's going to be uh, heavily influenced by direct mail. And, um, you know, I've gotten mailers from, well, I haven't, my wife has, I'm, I'm independent, but she's a Democrat, so she's gotten mailers on the, those candidates. And, uh, you know, that in some cases is all the information that people are going to get. You know, as much as we turn out and put out there and stuff, it's, you know, there's still a lot of people who are not getting a lot of information about the race and so they get it from the candidates and that's that's what the, the affects them so that's why the party i think the conservatives you're right they need to you know look for more of a bullet vote you know this is our person our one person get behind that person um and then also josh you know that when we talk about you know conservative voters in terms of the school district there's a vast number of single-issue people in there. I mean, there are people who are in there in that, you know, rubric that you that you and I use, that label that we put on it. You know, who are mostly concerned uh, about sex education. There are people who are more concerned about, you know, critical race theory and and programs arising from that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a kind of a uniform group of political interests. There's not a lot of leadership on the party. And so then you have people like, um, you know, James Fechner, who is, you know, always trying to put together business groups and so on. So it's, it's really a very diffuse uh, slice of the electorate. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you've got somebody from Orange County. I don't know how long he's been in Santa Barbara, but you know, you got somebody who grew up in Orange County running for the school board and Brian Campbell's been around a long time, but it feels as though they would benefit from having a long-term strategic plan for how to get people elected. And I know that the, 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 the voter registration is definitely working against them. That's why they need to find a good moderate, somebody who can appeal to those single issue people, but also be able to appeal to the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff that school districts have to deal with. You know, as a practical matter, Jerry, I mean, how much of this really matters? Um, doesn't uh, the superintendent, the, the, the cabinet, they're pretty much going to do whatever they want to do, and the board's more or less going to most of the time go along with that. I mean, how much 
How much control does uh, do the school board members actually have? Doesn't doesn't Hilda Maldonado pretty much run everything? Well, the the power, I mean, the real power they have is hiring and firing the superintendent, and they've just hired this superintendent. The previous superintendent, Kerry Matsuoko, left early. You know, he had a lot of controversies around him, and I think he was losing support on the board, uh, and that's kind of why he he left. Again, going back to 2016. You know, when you talk to Jackie Reed and Wendy and Laura, you know, they inherited a superintendent who was already, you know, almost a year ahead of them in terms of putting initiatives in place. But now the three uh, incumbents, you know, were part of the unanimous vote to hire uh, Hilda Maldonado from the Los Angeles uh, Unified School District. And I think they are very much on the same uh, page in terms of, uh, you know, equity being a high priority and really, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to address the so-called achievement gap, you know, in which, you know, not to put it bluntly, you know, white students are doing a lot better than Latinos. So, um, mm -hmm. so I, I, I think uh, if there was a conservative uh, elected, that person, uh, you know, could be the sort of, uh, you know, one uh, voice uh, that would sort of be in, in resistance to the to the strategies and the and the direction of the of the board. Uh, but absent that, you know, you have Kate Ford, who's on there, who's a career educator and really smart about this stuff, and she is pretty independent-minded, um, but I think her values uh, generally go along with the others. And then yeah. uh, Rosa Munoz, who's uh, you know an ally of Mayor Kathy Murillo and you know endorsed by the party, so she's she she also is in that camp. So you know if the conservatives could get one voice up there that you know to present an alternative, I think that would be an important step forward. But as you say, you know, they're kind of all over the place, so I don't know what the chances are. Let me ask you a little bit about Moni DeWitt. You know, I'm sure you've received some emails. I have, uh, you know, a sort of a feeling of, hey, I'm in the, the contest too, pay attention to me. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what is it about her candidacy that is different? You know, we're talking about six candidates for the most part and uh, three a little bit more than others, the incumbents. What is it about her candidacy that's not resonating with uh, with voters on a larger scale? Or or is it, and the journalists are missing it? Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, mm -hmm. she's not out there, you know, raising money from people or, you know, having fundraisers and stuff. She's running a very grassroots campaign. Uh, you know, she's at... Um, uh, as she said in her email, I think she, you know, she's been at farmers market, and you know, she's she's trying to really uh, go almost voter by voter to do a grassroots effort, and it's a very different approach than the other candidates are taking. Uh, you know, Moni is a photographer by trade, uh, but she's also um, dyslexic, and she discovered it very late in life when she, her son was having. Uh, issues with reading and, and in school and discovered he was as well. And she's done a lot of kind of volunteer advocacy on this issue, as you know, um, about what is the best way 
to uh, teach reading and what is the best way to teach reading to different um, uh, categories of students, you know, English learners, uh, people with ADD, dyslexic, and so on and so forth. And she has very strong opinions on that single issue. Uh, but as you also know, this is an issue that has been hotly debated in education circles and mm -hmm. in academia uh, for decades about what is the best time, the best way to do it. Um, before Matsuoko, there was a um, dyslexic kind of reading center group that was going on. He disbanded that. Moni and, uh, and some other people were really upset about that, and they're trying to get back to that. And, you know, her slogan is, you know, literacy is a human right. And she's um, extremely sincere and passionate about it. Uh, and she speaks with it for, about it from the heart, but you know she's just not going to be someone who's running a conventional political campaign. So um, you know I think we'll have to wait and see whether there is you know some grassroots support for her that maybe you know we're not picking up, which is entirely possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know she certainly has a lot of allies on this issue. She's done a lot of work on it. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think, you know, at the moment, you know that every campaign is about message, money, and organization. She has a message. She has no money. Uh, and I don't know what her organization is, whether it's uh, um, something that's going to come together, you know, to get her a lot of votes. Uh, in in hand, uh, you know, before the election, or we'll 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 just have to wait and see. You know, and I think it's one of the things that one of the mistakes people make is thinking that getting elected is like a job interview, right? It it really is very little to do with qualifications. It it really has to do with your ability to to resonate and connect and 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 obviously do the work and the three things you mentioned. But you know, it's sort of like. Moni is probably totally qualified to be on the school board because she's an expert on the literacy issue, and that, that's a good perspective to have. Uh, but this is about getting votes, and they're two different things. And let's transition along those lines to Santa Barbara City Council because um, you know, this is one of the things that I, I cover a lot and uh, talking about the changes that have happened there with district elections how it's not a job interview. It's really about can you get elected? And then district elections come along and they divide up the city and you have these smaller pockets of people who are electing people uh, to the city council. So you're seeing sort of this, this fractured state of the council right now where you've got people who probably, I mean, I'll just say it would never get elected in an at-large election who are on the council, but they're elected now and they are uh, trying to make decisions about what's going to benefit the entire, entire city. And what's happening is we're sort of seeing people going off in their own directions. And we've got Kathy Murillo, a mayor, who's a very nice person, but doesn't seem to be unifying, doesn't seem to be leading, doesn't seem to be building a coalition behind her. And she's had a couple of missteps publicly. But when you think about the city council and you think about district elections, Jerry, what what, what impact has district elections had on sort of the, 
the the messiness we see on the city council today? Well, I think it's hard to overstate um, the uh, transformational uh, impact of district elections. You know, I go back to you know San Fran covering San Francisco Board of Supervisors back in the 1970s, and I mean it was just a huge revolution, and it really um, ushered in some good things and some not so good things. And I think what it's done here is that if, if you have to run citywide, uh, you have to have sort of a broad unifying message and you have to talk to people on the west side and the east side and on the Mesa uh, and, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the Riviera and everywhere. This uh, system, which of course we have because of the California Voting Rights Act, because, uh, you know, Latinos were historically underrepresented, allows you, I think, to um, focus, you know, much more, uh, you know, in a niche way on a, on a certain group of voters. You can almost, you know, I mean, well, you can. You can count your voters. You know who they are. You can talk to everybody. I mean, look at Oscar Gutierrez and uh, on the West Side in District 3, Kathy Maria's old district. I mean, he went door to door, often with the mayor. So he knows who his voters are. He ended up with, what, 600 voters? 600 votes, something like that, yeah. in, that mm -hmm. in that special election. And now he's got a five-year seat. So um, does he represent uh, those voters? I think he does. Does he represent the best interests of the entire city? I don't know. So what you have had is, you know, previously you had council members who were basically uh, older, uh, you know, had maybe retired or, or uh, you know, had successful businesses or practices, uh, mostly white. Um, and so they were more of a, you know, kind of a, uh, I think, a, a business focused as a, as a class. I mean, that's an overgeneralization, but I, but I think so. Yeah. What you have now is a group of people who are, many of them directly beholden to the public employees unions of, of, at City Hall. Um, you have, as you mentioned, weak leadership by the mayor. We have a weak mayor system, and she's taking full advantage of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she hasn't really built uh, a coalition. She's not a unifying voice. She's often a polarizing voice, as, as you know. You know, if you say, if you're critical of her, she's, she takes it very personally and, and I think, you know, carries grudges and so on. So, so you have things like, as you pointed out on my show, you know, we had this uh, fatal stabbing on the east side last week. And, you know, did the mayor stand up and say anything about it? No. You know, Alejandro Gutierrez, the, the council member from, uh, from the east side did and spoke very um, well, I thought, and, and from the heart, uh, you know, and, and thanked the cops and, you know, talked about, I think, the issue in a complex and nuanced way but you know there was something someone who understood the tragedy of what had happened and it was clear so i think you know that's a positive when you look at district elections i mean she's very close to that situation and and feels very directly affected by it um but then you know the mayor who's the only person who runs uh citywide is somehow awol again hmm. who, who impresses you on the city council um, oh, Josh, I think they're all impressive in their own way. 
Hey, no, I so think, you said yeah, you're a blogger, so you can have a point of view. So it's okay. <laughs> well, I th- I'm I'm impressed by Alejandra. Uh, she's uh-huh. you know she doesn't. She's a political novice, obviously. She ousted an incumbent, Jason Dominguez. You know, there's a voice from the past, huh? By what, eight <laughs> votes or something? Eight votes, yeah. Um, but is, you know, so grounded and connected to, to the neighborhoods that she represents and, you know, has, has worked in the neighborhoods in a, uh, at the Franklin uh, Services Center. She's a director over there, so she knows a lot of people. She knows the needs of the community. And I think she's getting better at um, articulating that. And, and there, you know, what I like about her is that there's not a lot of artifice that you get with her. You know, mm-hmm. some people, you know, in politics, there's always this difference between, you know, the real person and what they're putting out there. And there's not a lot of difference with Alejandra. And I, and I kind of like the authenticity of that. I think Megan Harmon is kind of triple smart. I think she's got a... Uh, bright political future, you know, the, the way that she has gotten on council, uh, you know, she was appointed and then nobody stood up to run against her in the special election. So she's never actually won a vote, but you see her kind of driving the conversation a lot. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? She can count to four. She knows how to get votes and she has things that she's interested in, like this citizen review uh, uh system that they're setting up for the police department so she's i think she's very impressive you know i kind of i find mike jordan impressive in the sense that he's the one guy up there who i think represents um uh part of the population of you know older white homeowning voters uh who do vote and who represent perhaps you know more than their numbers and outsized slice of the electorate. And I think, you know, Mike is, understands that sensibility and he's also very steeped, you know, from his years uh, on the Planning Commission and, and the Water Commission in the kind of minutia of policy. So I like Mike because he understands, you know, the stuff that's actually going on. And like the school board, as you mentioned, the superintendent drives it. In the, it, as you know, the, the city administrator, Paul Casey, you know, directs a lot of what's going on with the city. Um, so I, I would say uh, those three people, I think Kristen Snedden is someone who is, uh, she's remained kind of a citizen about things. She hasn't really gotten sucked into the, to the political game too much. And I think is remains somewhat naive about that at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Friedman, uh, yeah, he's endorsed by the party, but I think his politics are actually more moderate than the party. So uh, I'm never quite sure um, what he's uh, what he is up to. Um, and then uh, Oscar, uh, we mentioned, who kind of goes his own way on things. Um, uh, so it's an eclectic group. I think generally they're left of center on a lot of things in terms of uh, public employee unions, uh, homeless issues. You know, they're kind of social justice oriented, uh, with the exception of, um, of maybe Jordan and and Christensen on some occasions. This podcast is sponsored by Radius Commercial Real Estate. 
For over 40 years, Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate has served the South Coast and Tri-County markets as the undisputed leader in multifamily investment sales, amassing more than $1 billion and 13,000 units sold over the last decade alone. With acumen for market analysis and connecting investors with the right properties, Steve is the go-to among local investors looking to capitalize in this unique real estate category. For unrivaled results in the sale or purchase of your residential income assets, contact Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate at www.radiusgroup.com or 805-965-5500. So let's let's just like stop beating around the bush and talk about the mayor. So so uh, you know, she she used to be a journalist, you know, and she used to work at the Independent, and she worked at KCSB, and then she decided to run, and the, the party got behind her, and I think everybody was really excited, you know, about that at the beginning. You know, here's a Latina female. She's, uh, you know, progressive. She's going to be somebody who might be able to do some things in politics. And uh, she was actually the first Latina ever elected to the city council. So there was a little bit of energy around her. And, you know, then she got elected and she did well and she was kind of popular. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to run for mayor. And then she runs for mayor and, you know, she wins. And it's such a contrast between her and Helene Schneider there. But the sort of uh, sheen has sort of worn off a little bit. You know, she ran for assembly and uh, did not do very well there. Uh, She was sort of, uh, it's kind of an odd thing to run for, just kind of out of nowhere when you're the mayor. And then now, you know, she had this, this, you know, this incident uh, in May with uh, Black Lives Matter and, you know, her inability to take a knee or kind of read the moment or the very minimum, just get out of the way and, and, and let, let, let other people have their moment and let them have their voice and not sort of trample on that. And so that was kind of a big, big misstep for her. Uh, wh- where do you see things going for her? Um, is she reelectable or is, is it over for her? Well, um, uh, as you know, she's kind of had a soft opening of her 2021 campaign she's on the ballot next year she's gonna she's gonna run again and uh you know i guess i would say you can't beat somebody with nobody so um you know who's gonna who's gonna stand up and challenge her you know we had former mayor hal conklin sort of the joe biden of uh, santa barbara who was gonna it looked like he was gonna uh, uh, challenge her next year but he's had some uh, serious health problems, so I, I, I'm not sure that he would. You know, there's a lot of talk and speculation about um, Randy Rouse, former council member running for mayor, and, you know, Randy's kind of playing hard to get about it. <laughs> I'm not sure his family thinks it's a, the best idea either. Um, so I don't think anybody on the council will do it, certainly not anybody that's been endorsed by uh the party you know i i it'd be fascinating if alejandra decided to take a swing at it and i'm you know this is just a total scenario speculative thing Mm -hmm. because um 
you know, to be blunt, you know, it would be hard for, you know, uh, a, a white woman, you know, just say hypothetically, you know, Megan Harm or Laura Capps, whatever, to try to oust the first Latina mayor. Uh, but Alejandra, who does not get on particularly well, as you know, with Mayor Kathy Murillo, although yeah. Kathy endorsed her and she was endorsed by the party, uh, that would be an interesting race. I would kind of pay to cover that one. And, uh, you know, Alejandra, you know, would be safe. She wouldn't have to give up her seat to do it. Or, or would she? I don't know. I don't know how that works. Um, but anyway, I don't see anyone out there. I assume, you know, the kind of tech, funk zone, business community types that, you know, got together and got Angel Martinez to run la last time are, are talking about it, looking for somebody. But right now... Uh, you know, Kathy's doing what she did the last time. She's starting early. She's going to raise a lot of money. She's going to try to clear the field. And, uh, you know, all of her uh, problems that she's had, which, you know, all go back to she has not displayed leadership. A leader is someone who can bring people together behind a program, an agenda. You know, what is Kathy's agenda? What, what does Kathy want to do? Uh, for for State Street, you know, she goes down there and hands out masks, you know. But I mean, what? So what? I mean, what? Mm -hmm. You really see the energy on that issue, you know, coming from Megan, coming from Kristen, coming from Mike. She's not leading on that issue. So she loves the ceremonial parts, you know. She loves putting the shovel in the ground and cutting the ribbon and doing all that stuff. People like her, you know, to her credit, I think she is a role model for young people. You know, she's been um, uh, very energetic in groups like Girls Inc. and so on. So, uh, you know, it's not all downside with her, but at a time when the city really needs some economic leadership, what are we doing? You know, retail's falling apart. Uh, you know, Macy's is gone. Uh, Dorstrom is gone. Uh, you know, we got this pandemic. Uh, you know, what, what, what's going on? You know, two examples. One was in, I think, your story about um, the uh, people want a stop sign uh, over on uh, uh, the Mesa where someone was just hit by you know, a, a car. You know, and what does she do? She sends a letter saying, oh, well, we're going to try to get a grant and we have great grant writers on our, uh, on our city <laughs> staff. And then, and then again, this stabbing on the east side, you know, she just was, there, there was no leadership there. So uh, she's been, you know, laying low, uh, which I think was been a wise move, you know, let people kind of forget about all the controversy. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'd be very surprised if somebody didn't step up and challenge her and run a campaign on all of her flaws and, you know, all the missteps and all the things that you have mentioned. I don't know who that person is going to be, but I, I think that to Kathy's benefit, it might be multiple people. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, I th the, the blueprint is there. You know, the campaign strategy is there. You don't have to figure out an angle to unseat her. It's, it's all there. The question is, can somebody who's formidable step forward and uh, be willing to do it? Because as you mentioned, of course, there's people on the council who would make better mayors than she is, but they're not going to run because they don't want to upset the party. And if they, cause if they do that and they lose, they're done. And so, you know, there's plenty of people who could do it, but 
the question is who is going to do who is going to try and so then that pool becomes much smaller then you start getting into the Angel Martinez's of the world who think they can win just because they have a lot of money but don't knock on a single door you know and so or, or drop any literature themselves you know so um, that's sort of the that's sort of the question but yeah and I, I mean that's a great point because you know there were five people that ran for mayor Kathy finished first with I think 27 percent which means 73 percent of the city to you know three quarters of the city voted for somebody else so to me I mean, you know, this is really a blue sky thing, but, you know, why don't we have a runoff for mayor? If, if that's going to be the one uh, office that is, you know, has to run citywide, then they ought to really be able to have to campaign citywide. So if you took those five people uh, who ran last time, what I think Hal finished second, did he not? Uh, yeah. In the end. Yeah, he finished second. So then take the the first and second finishers like they do in, you know, countless other jurisdictions and have them campaign against each other in a runoff, you know, three weeks or four weeks later. I think you would have had a very different result. Yeah, I wonder if Helene Schneider would make a return. Can she? Is she is she is having done two terms, can she do can she come back? Is it consecutive terms? I, I think it's consecutive terms. I mean, Hal Conklin spent an enormous amount of time as a city council member and then a, like a year as mayor. And, right, before uh, he was ousted by this lawsuit about um, about uh, term limits. So yeah. it's, yeah. I, don't I think it's consecutive, but I don't know. You know, it's just sort of, um, there's lots of people out there who would make it interesting, but... Well, Helene's got to be like, you know, uh, you know, you won't miss me. Tell I'm gone because you know, <laughs> she, she took a lot of heat, but she was very good at the job, you know, at, at figuring out what's off the agenda. You know, they didn't have these meetings going till midnight, 2 a.m. all the time because they were all, you know, it, it, it just bad organization. And she knew where the votes were. And she also did a good job of, you know, when there was a debate of sort of synthesizing the debate before weighing in. Kathy, you know, going in where she's going to be, she's going to be on whatever the, you know, Democratic Party uh, platform agenda position is. Yeah, and so let's, let's transition a little bit to talking about uh, November. And obviously, we've got a ton of things on the ballot. Um, what what on the statewide ballot is standing out to you? I, you know, I know you've done some things on this on your show. Um, what what propositions are you most focused on? Um, well, I think the big one is they're the biggest one. There's a lot of big ones. I mean, there's a lot of really important stuff, but it's yeah. uh, Proposition 15, <clears throat> which would make a very dramatic changes to to Proposition 13. And I, I just have to tell you a really quick story. On the night that uh, Proposition 13 passed, June 7, 1978, I was dispatched to L.A. to cover Howard Jarvis uh, on the night. And I chased him around the hotel with a couple of other reporters at the Biltmore for all night. And he was completely drunk. And <laughs> around midnight, he finally led us into his hotel suite and, and he was limping. And, and the AP guy said, what, 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 Mr. Jarvis, why are you limping? He said, oh, I fell down in the TV studio uh, the other day, look, and he pulled down his pants and there he mooned the entire press corps, which was about three or four people. But, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> man, he had this, these, these white boxer shorts on that were the size of a sail. 
And and I'm like, you know, I can. It's one of those things you can't ever unsee. So when whenever I think about Proposition 13, I always think about that's what Howard Jarvis kind of did to the state. So, <laughs> but what uh, Prop Prop 15? Did you did you mention that in your reporting? Uh, I I have yeah, and I actually got it in the paper. I got it in. We had like a I don't know a five star three dot or something. You know, when there were newspapers and you used to actually chase it. So it is in, it was in the final, final edition. There was a paragraph at the end of this story about it that I phoned in from a payphone to a rewrite man. I mean, <laughs> not, not, not to date myself here. But anyway, so what Prop 15 would do um, is change the way that tax bills are calculated for commercial real estate, which is to say any business property worth three million dollars or more so you know a big effect on office buildings banks shopping malls all like that uh, and what happened with prop 13 as you know is uh the when it passed in 78 everybody's assessment both residential and commercial was put back to whatever it was at one uh, uh 1975 and then your tax bill was one percent of that and it could increase no more than 2% every year unless the property was sold. And when property was sold, then it would be reassessed at market value. Taxes would go up substantially. So that's had a lot of perverse consequences. One of them is that there has been this sort of cottage industry of accountants and lawyers who have figured out a way to have transfers of property and business without triggering a reassessment. So you have places uh, that are still being taxed, you know, huge office buildings, Disneyland, Target uh, stores, uh, all kinds of commercial real estate apartment buildings throughout California that are still being assessed on that, you know, very low Prop 13 value. So this would, change the way that those assessments are made. So every county, all 58 counties have an assessor. So going forward, the assessor would then calculate commercial properties as we defined by its market value. You know, what is it worth today rather than what, it's, uh, the, what it was sold for originally. So this would generate for state government anywhere between seven and $12 billion a year the proposition is sponsored by the California Teachers Association mm -hmm. and the SEIU, the, the Public Employees Union. Um, and supposedly about 40% of the money would go to public schools. Uh, a lot of the rest of it would go to city and counties. But of course, uh, the business community led by the Chamber of Commerce, retailers, uh, apartment owners uh, are uh, really against this. You know, I think that when the sponsors put it on, we didn't have a pandemic. We didn't mm -hmm. have an economic slowdown. So the um, atmosphere, I think, is much different than what they thought it was going to be, which would be, you know, an anti-Trump Democratic turnout in November that would help push them across. And I think a lot of people are worried about the impact of, a, you know, even people that don't like corporations and, you know, big property owners are worried about what the impact is going to be of a $12 billion tax increase in the middle of this, whatever it is, recession, depression, mm -hmm. economic slowdown that we have because of the pandemic. So huge stakes uh, for state government, 
which was passed a budget assuming they were going to get $11 billion from the federal government and another a bailout, which hasn't come, uh, for schools. Uh, not so much here, um, the way that our uh, most of our districts are funded, but for districts around the state. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the biggest stakes initiative on the uh, on the ballot. Is it polling? Do you, do you have any sense of what, which way there, it's going to turn There have been two public polls, one by the uh, Public Policy Institute of California, San Francisco, and one by uh, the UC Berkeley poll. And uh, the one poll, the PPIC poll, showed it at 51%, which is not good mm-hmm. at this stage of the campaign for an initiative like this. You know, to, Because what happens as the campaign goes, as you know, two-thirds of the initiatives in history uh, since, uh, what, 1911 have, have been defeated because people, when they don't understand things or they're unsure about things or they're confused about them, they tend to vote, vote no. So if you're going to pass something as complicated and as um, consequential as this, you really you know, want to see your polling be at like 60% about now because it's going to go down. So that 51% is not great. The other poll showed it at 40%, but with a huge undecided. So, you know, if you've been watching, you know, basketball or the news or anything else, you know, there's these ads all over the place. So that's always what affects people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the yes side is, is campaigning on hope and the no side is campaigning on fear. And, I, you know, my sense is in this atmosphere, fear might win. Yeah, well, speaking of that, I mean, I've seen a lot of them for Prop 22, and and it seems like there's a huge push on that. You know, the the gig economy, Uber, Lyft. Um, are you are you getting that same sense that that's going to be another high stakes one? And can you walk us through what's at stake there for independent contractors? Yeah, another one where there's a huge amount of money on both sides. So in 2019, the legislature passed and Governor Newsom signed Assembly Bill 5 AB 5. Uh, which was based on a California Supreme Court decision called the Dynamex uh, decision, which basically said uh, that for all intents and purposes, a great many people who were working as independent contractors, as both you and I were as columnists and freelance writers, were employees. And there was a three-part test about whether you were an employee or not. But basically it required a lot of businesses to make people uh, employees who had been independent contractors, which meant they had to pay for unemployment insurance, they had to pay for um, uh, workers' compensation, uh, health benefits, all kinds of things. So this was something that was strongly supported by the unions, uh, and the unions are the most uh, influential special interest in Sacramento. But it was such a broad they painted with such a broad brush that there were a lot of uh, unintended consequences. Uh, one of them, of course, was freelance writers, script writers, book writers, all these people all of a sudden lost their gigs. I lost my column. You were, I guess, became an employee uh, because they hadn't thought through, you know, what that was. And, and there were people in the medical profession and the legal profession elsewhere who were affected by it. The big target for the legislature was Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and these uh, businesses that have a business, a disruptive business model that is, you know, based on having independent contractors drive 
for them. And the unions thought this was an opportunity to organize. So what's happened is that Uber and Lyft have now put on the ballot um, uh, Proposition 22, which is uh, essentially an attempt to carve out their industry from uh, being uh, regulated by AB5. Mm-hmm. So they're spending a lot of money on this, and the ads are very good because they feature like real people. You know, hi, I'm a single dad, and I drive, and I need this flexibility because I got to pick my kids up, and like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, the unions hammering it on the other side. So I have not seen polling on that one recently. Um, you know, it's at the end of the ballot. It's at the end of a really complex ballot. It's a complicated issue at the end of a complex ballot. So on the natural, people are going to go, oi, oi, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote no on that. But as I say, I think the ads are very good. So I, I, I think it has a chance. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's like the new economy, the gig economy, the way things have changed in the future. You know, you sort of have Sacramento and the union standing up and saying, you know, no, the future will not come. Um, and uh, it's an interesting, I mean, it's fascinating. I don't know if the voters of California, the people who ought to be making these decisions, but that's the way the initiative process has been distorted. we got a few more minutes here. I wanted to talk to you about what's happening on the national stage. We just had the debate with um, Pence and, and Harris, and then, of course, Donald Trump's got COVID-19 and then he's out and, you know, bragging about how he beat it. Uh, what's going to happen with, uh, you know, the presidential race? I mean, Trump's got to be gone, right? There's no chance he's getting reelected. Of course, there was no chance he was going to get reelected according to all the polling um, or he was going to get elected in the first place. Remember all the polling said Hillary was going to win. What's going to happen in November? Well, first of all, the polling was not wrong. I mean, the national poll, I think the average was Hillary was going to win by the popular vote by 2.5%. She won by 2.1%. So the polling, the national poll, it was the state polling in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin that was mm-hmm. not up to date. And what happened was there was a late break among the undecideds for Trump. People hated both of them. And so if you hated both of them and you weren't sure, you ended up voting for Trump. Now the dynamic is different because Trump is running as uh, on his record and specifically on his record as pandemic. And you can just see it in the polls, the bottom has fallen out for this guy. So if it was a normal year, uh, if it was a you know conventional election, you look at those polls and you say, yeah, Biden's going to win. I mean, Biden is competing in, you know, Georgia and, and Texas and a lot of places, but because of the pandemic, because a lot of states are scrambling to make sure people vote and are, you know, have gone to all mail ballots, Trump has dug in against that. The big wild card is what is going to happen on the election. What votes are going to be counted? Who's going to count them? Uh, you know, everybody's assuming that Trump is going to stand up on election night and say, I won. And there's going to be a huge amount of the vote. And in big states that matter, like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, that's not going to be counted on election night. Mm -hmm. And you know how elections go in California. It takes weeks to count all the votes. Mm -hmm. So he's going to try to establish that. You know, some of the Fox News will probably go along. I mean, it's going to be a mess. So that's really what's the big question is what vote is going to be counted? When's it going to be counted? 
and how how is that going to play out? And then you have the you know this other piece, uh, you know, like in Michigan, there's so-called militias. They're terrorist gangs that were going to you know kidnap the Democratic governor, and the, and you and you have Trump calling out to the Proud Boys, you know, these right-wing thugs on the street. Um, and then you have the Antifa, you know, the, the, the anarchists on the other side. So you really have this uh, specter of civil strife happening. So it's, it's kind of scary uh, about wh what's going to happen. Uh, you know, I, I think the thing to look at really is the Senate races on election night. What's happening in the Senate races? The Democrats, mm -hmm. if they win the White House, they need to flip three seats. If they don't win the White House, they need to flip four. But if they don't win the White House, they're not going to get four. So their chances look very good in Colorado, which is a purple state with a, 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 an unpopular Republican incumbent in Maine, uh, kind of the, the, the same situation, and in Arizona. So there's three. They're going to lose one in Alabama where they had a special election and the, guy, the Democrat was running against a, an accused child molester. Uh, so he won, but he'll probably lose. So they need to win somewhere else. So, you know, look at the states where they're competing. It's astonishing. It's like South Carolina. You know, Lindsey mm -hmm. Graham is in a tie race in Georgia, uh, even in Texas, the incumbent in in Iowa. So the thing is, if the if the Repo if it's clear on election night that the Democrats have taken the Senate then it's going to be extremely hard for Trump to say he's win because that is going to be a true wave election. The other thing is we're probably going to know on election night who wins Florida. And there's no way for Trump to win the Electoral College if he loses Florida. Okay. So if Biden has declared the winner in Florida on election night, or if there's a wave happening with the Senate, then I think it's going to be pretty difficult for Trump to hang on. But I mean, you know, you had both him, the president and the vice president saying, you know, not saying they were going to uh, pledge to, you know, accept a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, it's extraordinary the things that are happening. You know, you got the president calling for the arrest of, of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and, you know, <laughs> a, attacking the attorney general for not doing it. I mean, we're in really crazy, Bill, un, uncharted territory with this guy. Um, so it, it's a, it's going to be scary. And remember... He's going to be in office for 77 days after the election. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So plenty of day, time for mischief between then and January 20th. <laughs> what did you think of Bob Woodward and his book and his interviews and how you know, he came out with the audio tapes of Trump and how Trump was seemingly very aware of the impacts of COVID early on and very scared and concerned, but... He was projecting an entirely different attitude in public. What did you think of, journalistically, him waiting to release that information up until now? Um, do you see any sort of um, ethical thing there? Uh, should he have done it as soon as he had the recordings? Uh, should he have timed it with his book release right before the election? Uh, what do you think of that? Well, uh you know, it's hard to say, you know, he doesn't, he's not really on the staff of the Washington Post anymore. He has this phony title, associate editor, so he can keep his <laughs> connection there. And they do often, you know, he, in the past when he's written books and he's found, you know, news, they put it in at, at the time, you know, in real time. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a disservice to the country that he didn't do it. 
Uh, on the other hand, I guess there's a calculation about what difference would it have made. I mean, we live in such a polarized media environment. I mean, do you think if Bob Woodward had re had reported that in the Post, that was going to make any difference to people over at Fox News? You know. Yeah. So, you know, I think if he's calculating the importance of it, he figured it would make more of an impact now. But, um, you know, it just goes back to the fact that the country is divided about what they believe, who they believe. And uh, a substantial, you know, 40 percent, 43 percent. That's why Trump's numbers never go below it. You know, people look to Fox News, believe what they see on Fox News and believe what they see in Trump's Twitter feed. And there's no way you're going to convince them otherwise. You have a majority of people uh, who, you know, get their information elsewhere, you know, CNN, MSNBC, the networks, maybe the big papers, their national news I'm talking about. But it's just, you know, remember Trump's first week in office. He, Kellyanne Conway went on national television and, and talked about alternative facts. I mean, it's just, we don't have a shared uh, sense of what is true anymore. <laughs> and it just really makes it difficult in this media environment to have any kind of unity uh, in the country. You know, Trump's never tried to do that. He's played to his base the whole time. He's the president of the red states, made it clear he despises voters in the blue states who aren't for him. Biden is doing his best. He has a unity message, but it's uh, we're in a mess, man, as a country. It's just uh, it's really difficult times. You know, you covered a lot of national politics in San Francisco. Do you ever do you ever wish you could be covering Donald Trump right now and asking him those questions, um, you know, at the White House? Or, or I mean, do, do you no. feel like, hey, we need no. could you have made a difference at all if you were covering no. him? No, I, and I am so glad I'm retired and not having to. <laughs> You know, try to, I, I don't know how people have the energy. I mean, I'm exhausted just reading the news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when people look back in history, the Washington Post particularly, and the, and the Times, and the Wall Street Journal to a certain extent, have just done extraordinary journalism in just piling up fact after fact after fact. Again, you know, in covering an administration that lies like it breathes. And, yeah. you know, we've... We've never had something like this um, in the history of the country, really. Someone who was trying to be a monarch and, and just had no concern for the truth. And so I think, you know, the, the, the mainstream media gets a lot of criticism. But as someone who's, you know, been inside and you know what it's like covering stuff and how difficult it is putting it out there, I, I think they've just done extraordinary work. All right, Jerry. Well, I always appreciate your political uh, expertise. Um, I, I want to use the word triple smart with you, too, but I'm not sure if that's a technical term or not. But um, No, you know, I invented that term, actually, in college for Al Gore. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, was, he was just working at so many levels all the time. Because <laughs> everybody there was smart, but he was triple well, again, uh, thanks for uh, explaining these issues and taking some time to offer your uh, knowledge, journalistic knowledge, political knowledge. It's always a pleasure to hear you talk, and I always learn a lot from you. So thanks a lot. All right, brother. Thanks for having me. All right. And you can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. And thanks to Kiva Cowork for supporting these podcasts.